Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're here with part two of our shining extravaganza. Yes, Dr. Sleep. From 2019. And we are so excited because it's another Flanagan film, baby. I am extra excited because Ewan McGregor is in this. He is very handsome. I'm a longtime lover of Ewan McGregor. He's Obi-Wan Kenobi. And what really sealed the deal for me was seeing Moulin Rouge starring Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. I think that movie came out in maybe 2003, 2005, and it changed my life. So if you know, you know, and if you don't, thanks for listening. (laughs) It's a great movie. Yep. And I particularly love one of the ladies in this movie, which I'll talk about her when we get to her. But starting off generally with our leads in this movie, we have Abra, who is played by Kylie Curran. She is an American actress known for her roles as Lenore in The Fall of the House of Usher, which you and I both saw and both loved. Mm -hmm. And also plays a young Nala (gasps) on the Broadway production of The Lion King. What? That's so cool. Such a cool career. (laughs) She also won a Saturn Award for Best Performance by a Younger Actor in 2021 for her role in this film. That is so cool. Then we have Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson. She is a Swedish actress known for her roles in the Mission Impossible franchise, The Girl on the Train, The Greatest Showman, Mm -hmm. The Dune franchise, and TV roles in The White Queen, The Red Tent, Silo, and Swedish soap opera Naya Teeter. And she won a Fangoria Chainsaw Award in 2020 for Best Supporting Actress for her role in this film. She is so good in this film. She is so fucking good. Also, thank you for including The White Queen. I have seen it. I included it for you thinking you might. It's my historical drama. Did you like it? Yeah, I thought it was really good. It's based on a true story. I figured. Most are. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, she's gorgeous. And I love her villain character. It's so good. It's so so good. She kind of, you know what? As I was watching this, I was trying to think of like what other villain she reminded me of. And I just realized it's that doctor from Saw 10. Mm, yeah. She gives really similar energy, like really gorgeous, but really smart. A fellow Swede. <laughs> A fellow Swede. A fellow Swede. Yes. They really have totally in totally different ways, but a similar presence as this like I don't know, like sensual villain that's really smart and really quick to anger, which is fun to watch on the screen. It is certainly fun to watch mm. on the screen. <laughs> Fans self. Fans self. <laughs> then we have Snakebite Andy, who is played by Emily Allen Lind. She's an American actress known for her roles in The Babysitter and The Babysitter Killer Queen, The Gossip Girl Reboot, and our favorite sequel that we have yet to cover, <laughs> The Haunting in Connecticut 2, Ghost of Georgia. Okay, look. <laughs> We have to watch The Haunting in Connecticut 2, Ghosts of Georgia this year. Very soon. Because what was the other actress that we just mentioned that is in this? Somebody. Somebody. I think maybe somebody in Saw 10, actually. It might have been. The universe is telling us we need to watch this movie sooner Very rather soon. than later. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. We have Lucy, who plays Abra's mother. She is played by Jocelyn Donahue. She's an American actress known for her roles in The House of the Devil, Insidious Chapter 2, Dead Awake, and the TV series Startup. And then we have Wendy Torrance, who is played by Alex Esso, so not Shelley Duvall. I'll be talking about some of the recast decisions in our context and post-plot. But Alex is a Canadian actress known for Starry Eyes, Midnighters, Death of Me, and supporting roles in The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass and appearances in The Midnight Club and Fall of the House of Usher. So very much a friend of the Flanagan family. Going into the pre-plot, this is written and directed by Mike Flanagan. We, of course, know him on the podcast from Hush and Oculus, but he's also responsible for Haunting Hill House, Bly Matter, Midnight Mass, Follow the House of Usher, The Midnight Club, Gerald's Game, Ouija Origin of Evil, Before I Wake. Took the 
biggest inhale before <laughs> rattling. You were like, the haunting of Hill House, the haunting of Limit. <laughs> because I feel like I've like talked about his filmography so much, especially in the last like six months. He's known for everything that we love and cherish. <laughs> So development came shortly after the novel's release in 2013, but was fast-tracked after the commercial success of It 2017, another King adaptation. This is based on a novel that was only released in 2013? Yes. That is so cool. I know. And this is actually Flanagan's second King adaptation following 2017's Gerald's Game. We also have that on our 2024 list. It's coming. So going into just some development details... While the Doctor Sleep film is intended to be a direct adaptation of the 2013 sequel novel, Flanagan said the adaptation still acknowledges Kubrick's The Shining in some way. Flanagan said it is an adaptation of the novel Doctor Sleep, which is Stephen King's sequel to his novel The Shining, but this also exists very much in the same cinematic universe that Kubrick established in his adaptation of The Shining. He explained that working with all the sources, reconciling those three at times very different sources, has been kind of the most challenging and thrilling part of this creativity for us. He first read the novel and then had a conversation with King to work out adapting all of the sources. As part of the process, Flanagan recreated scenes from The Shining to use in the flashbacks. On why he wanted to present the film as a continuation of Kubrick's film, Flanagan expressed, The Shining is so ubiquitous and has burned itself into the collective imagination of people who love cinema in a way that so few movies have. There's no other language to tell that story in. If you say Overlook Hotel, I see something. It lives right up in my brain because of Stanley Kubrick. You can't pretend that isn't the case. King is famously known to dislike Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, particularly due to omitting several aspects of the novel that were personal to him, such as themes related to alcoholism and its role in the disintegration of family, which Flanagan read as an examination of his fear of what his alcoholism could do to his family, and wrote himself hope and sacrifice at the end. None of that is present in Kubrick's film. That was a bridge too far of a personal level for him. The opening of the Doctor Sleep novel was seen as King undoing and avoiding the changes Kubrick made to the Shining film. And this all comes from the wiki. I just find it so interesting to preface it with all of that, being that Flanagan is both trying to create a book adaptation. So King is writing a sequel to his movie. He's ignoring that the Kubrick movie exists because he doesn't like it. And King actually went on to make a 1997 miniseries called The Shining that was actually more of a straightforward adaptation. But of course, the 1980 film is the one that's in the collective conscious Mm -hmm. of cinematography, right? Like everyone thinks of Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and all of those types of things because it is a great piece of filmmaking. However, Flanagan took on this realm of working with King personally to be like, hi, we have to acknowledge that the thing you don't like over there exists, and I have to create something that is a sequel to that, but I'm also going to give you a little bit of justice and put in some of these themes that you wanted to see present and make them work in this movie. So he's actually kind of making two different sequels and creating one film out of both of them. God, that's one hell of a writing prompt. He... We love this man. And if there's anybody who could do it, it was him. And I think he did it well. We have not read the text. Like, we have not Mm -hmm. read The Shining and Dr. Sleep. But from everything that I'm reading of the comparisons and the things that were changed, there's obviously some significant strays away from the book just for the sake of filmmaking. And the ending is actually something that's pretty different. However, I do think from what I'm reading and everything that I'm seeing that King purists largely do accept Dr. Sleep as like a very good adaptation. Cool. I love that. 
So let's get into it. Let's do it. So we start with an overhead shot of a campground, which I noticed right away resembles very much the opening shot of the very heavily wooded road in The Shining, 1980. But we are in like a campground in Florida in the year 1980. Which is when The Shining came out. Exactly. <laughs> There's a little girl named Violet telling her mother that she's going to go pick some flowers down by the riverbank. And as she does show, she sees that there is a singing woman perched on a picnic bench. The woman offers Violet a flower and the girl accepts. And this woman is Rose the Hat, Rebecca Ferguson's character. And she's wearing a very peculiar hat. It kind of looks like a top hat, but shorter. She says that her friends call her Rose the Hat because of this peculiar hat that she often wears. It's a magician's hat. And as Rose shows Violet a trick, I think this opening sequence is very effectively scary. It's very good. As Rose shows Violet a trick, we kind of hear like a twig break in the distance. And Violet looks to see a man appear 20 feet or so away in the thick of the woods. Rose brushes it off, saying it's her friend. The trick continues. We hear some more twigs. Violet looks, and now there's more people appearing in the woods. Maybe about seven or eight people spaced equally apart within the trees. Violet starts getting scared and tries to leave, but Rose already has Violet's hand in hers and grips her hard until the surrounding people draw in to surround Violet and the scene cuts out. Yeah, ending the scene eating one of the flowers that comes out of the hat. And that flower is a violet, which is Violet's mm. name. And Violet is protesting, being like, you shouldn't eat flowers. And she says, honey, it's the special ones that taste the best, right, as people consume her. I also think it's interesting that Rose's name is Rose and this girl's name is Violet, mm. like kind of drawing comparison. And this comes up a little bit later, like the idea of Rose looking at maybe like a young girl and thinking, I see myself in you. And I feel like we kind of start having that foundation established here with Rose and Violet. Like there are marked similarities between the young girl and the woman that is Rose. We don't see that explored here, but we see it explored later with another character. So then we are taken to a snowy overlook. We're getting the title card with the carpet design. Mm -hmm. And we see a kid, Danny Torrance, riding his tricycle through the hallways of the overlook. And this is not archival footage. This is reshot footage. It's a different kid. Same outfit, same spatial awareness and everything like that, but different characters playing these principal roles. And Danny stops at room 237. The doorknob turns and the door pushes open. And Danny looks on very afraid at the darkness behind the door and wakes up gasping in a different room. So we're presuming this is a flash back and this is now danny shortly after the events of the overlook hotel he is going to walk toward the bathroom but he hears heavy breathing and water noises and as he approaches the bathroom the bathtub lady mm. from the overlook <laughs> pops out and her hand is gripping the curtain he closes the door and backs up and it looks like the door is about to open again and spring at him but wendy is there to embrace and comfort him we then cut to a different scene where there is a suggestion that Danny has wet himself. He's sucking his thumb. Again, these very self-soothing behaviors that we saw take place in The Shining. And Wendy asks him what happened, saying, you haven't talked since we left. Please talk to me. But he is not able to communicate with her. We cut to Danny sitting on a park bench by the water. And Dick appears... Not played by... Not played by the same actor, but by an actor who resembles Dick enough that we can identify. And of course, the conversation he's having with Danny is establishing the connection that they had. Obviously, this figure is a spiritual presence in Danny's life. 
And he's telling Danny again about his gift, saying that one day Danny will have to teach somebody about the gift of The Shining, like Dick did with him. And he says that the Overlook Hotel is now vacant and boarded up, and that's why the ghosts keep appearing to him. Like, they're bored and hungry. And then he recounts being haunted by his own mean dead grandfather, and he shows Danny a trick that he learned for keeping his dead grandfather's spirit at bay by showing Danny how to imagine a box that he can trap these negative spirits in so that they will not bother him in his waking life anymore. Wendy then runs out of whatever building she was in and finds Danny sitting on the bench, but we see that there is nobody next to him. And also, I think this moment's really interesting because as we pan away from Wendy hugging a young Danny, we see a missing poster for Violet on the park board. So later, Danny and Wendy are watching Bugs Bunny on the TV, and Danny appears to hear a noise from somewhere else in the house. So he gets up to investigate, leaving Wendy alone on the couch, and he opens the bathroom door and sees the bathtub lady standing menacing above him. But then we see Danny enter the bathroom and shut the door behind him. And we see visualizations of an open and then closed box in his mind. And the ghost woman screams their silence and Danny joins his mother back on the couch. So we're seeing that Danny is putting into place, locking these entities away in his mind so that he doesn't have to face them or they can't feed on him. Also, these boxes are located in a snowy maze Mm. from the Overlook Garden, which I think comes into play later, too, as far as, again, where his head is. Time jump to an adult Danny waking up to a naked woman in bed next to him and remembering the night before as he pukes into a toilet. He looks like he is in his late 30s, early 40s. He is taking shots, smoking cigarettes. There's general rowdiness at a bar in New Jersey in 2011. I wrote, he notices a shiner, lol, on his eye (laughs) and remembers getting to a fight the night before leaving the bar and bringing this woman home with him. Or I guess going home with this woman because we come to find out that this woman's son is just wandering about the house looking for his mom. Yeah, this is a baby. This must be like a one-year-old, two-year-old baby. He notices that he doesn't have any money left and he steals some cash from his date's purse. And that's when the toddler wanders in and is like, mommy? So... (laughs) Danny's trying to leave, but then the voice of Dick kind of cuts into his consciousness and says, put the money back. Like, you don't need it. She needs it more. But I think he still takes it, right? I think he does, too. Yeah. He ignores that voice. Yeah. But he picks up the baby, puts it on the bed with his mom, and then leaves the scene. So we're getting the sense that Dan, as an adult, has just been trying to get by and has fallen from grace a little bit. All of a sudden, we are in Long Island. There is a teenager named Andy who is sitting in a movie theater when she is suddenly joined by an older man next to her in the theater. We learn through their conversation that they have met online and that they are meeting here very inappropriately because Andy is very clearly like 15 years old, which is confirmed later. As this interaction is happening, we can see that Rose, the woman from the opening scene, and her right-hand man, Crow Daddy, Crow Daddy, are watching the scene unfold from a couple rows back in the theater. And Crow Daddy is telling Rose, watch what happens. I've seen her do this several times now. So we watch then as Andy somehow puts this man to sleep next to her, steals his wallet, and then carves two marks into the man's cheek, telling him that every time he sees the scars in his reflection now, he'll say aloud, I like little girls and remember the time he got bitten by a rattlesnake. 
So through this interaction, we are seeing that Andy somehow has the powers to manipulate people by speaking to them. Like she can tell people what to do, what to think, how to feel. And that is what she's doing here before she gets up and leaves the theater, which obviously impresses Rose and Crow Daddy. Rose ends up catching up with Andy outside. Rose grabs her and Andy's like, you want to let me go? And Rose smirks at her and is like, no, I don't. <laughs> so like proving that Rose is more powerful than Andy yeah, and true, is able point. to like resist her powers. Yes. Implying that the abilities don't work on her. So then we're at a little girl's birthday party named Abra. And there is a magician there. He's doing tricks where he is balancing a spoon on his nose and pouring other cutlery out of his magician's hat. And Abra's like, I can do magic too. So Abra's parents walk into the kitchen to ready the birthday cake, and they find all of the spoons floating at the ceiling and all of the forks on the ground. And Abra says, Abracadabra, with like the cutest smile. This, it's so cute. This baby child <laughs> is, is adorable. And the parents are fucking shook. There's a jump scare when the spoons fall. Then we're being taken to Dan waking up on a bus. He has taken a bus to New Hampshire, I guess, just to start over somewhere else, get away from this situation. But he is waking up as if he was seeing that vision of Abra as a dream. Mm -hmm. So these two are kind of getting connected in the shining sphere somehow. And meanwhile, Rose is feeling a big gust of wind and smirks. So she has also somehow been able to sense Abra's power from wherever she is. So she steps into her sick-ass RV. Um, This woman's RV has like a chandelier, doesn't it? Yes. And like a literal jacuzzi bathtub like in the middle of the living room. <laughs> it's reminding me of those tents in Harry Potter where it's like it yes. looks like a stick tent and then you walk into it and it's a cathedral. Like yes. that's what it was reminding me of. It is giving that. But Rose walks into the RV and Andy is sleeping there. And Andy wakes up to the sound of the door slamming shut and is obviously very alarmed, being like, where the fuck am I? What's going on? Rose pours herself some tea and sits with Andy and says, you know, Andy's pretty willful, that she had to sleep her pretty hard. And she did her homework on Andy and that there's been six men in three months with snake bite scars on their cheeks in the news. And Rose is able to show Andy her powers because I guess Rose can compel people to also tell the truth. So she was like, tell me the truth. And Andy's like, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. So it's like, yeah. it's very cute, but it's also showing that Andy already has a sense of admiration for Rose apart from her obviously being fucking terrified that she just got kidnapped yes. by this woman. But Rose goes on to say that Andy is a pusher and they haven't had a pusher around for a long time. After learning that Andy's only 15 years old, and I have stuff about this later that I want to talk about, but I love this monologue that she goes on. She's like, 15, what an age. You're not a girl anymore, but you don't have a single dent yet either. Gravity hasn't even noticed you. Men, though, no, no shame. But you paid that back, didn't you? That's what I'm offering you. Springtime forever. Because she says she's in like the springtime of her womanhood. Mm -hmm. 10 years from now, you'll still be 15. 100 years from now, maybe 17. As long as you eat well, you'll stay young and live long. Okay. Okay. I was thinking about this, though. If you had to be, like, frozen. Oh, God, I would age, not pick 15. But I would not. Exactly. I would not pick 15. I would pick, like, maybe 23. Maybe I 24. literally thought of that. I was like, actually, 15 sounds like a horrible age to be frozen in. Well, you've never seen Interview with a Vampire, have you? No, not in full. So Kirsten Dunst is a child in that movie with Tom Cruise and whoever plays the other dude. I don't remember. But oh my god, um, Antonio, Antonio. I thought it was Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's in there, but so is Antonio Banderas. I, I forget his last name. 
there's two of them that end up turning Kirsten Dunst because she is dying of like some fever or whatever like oh. that. But she's turned at like seven years old and then she's immortal in the body of a seven year old. There's like a whole plot point later on in that movie about how she is now a woman in a child's body and she'll never be able to live as a woman. Okay. And it's like a really interesting yeah. thing of like being frozen in time at a certain age. And I thought about that when I was looking at this. Obviously, Rose is trying to make it so that she has a weapon that is not going to be detected because Andy's 15 and no one sees her as a threat. She's trying to convince Andy, oh, you're in the springtime of your womanhood. Like, this is the best time. This is the ideal time to be a woman because no one's noticing you and like you're not being persecuted and all of these types of things, but you're charming and people like you. But like, no, like she wants somebody small and unassuming on her team so that they can influence people and she can get what we find out to be steam very soon. I just loved that level of manipulation. It's just proving her villainy like so early, even though this scene, it comes off very much like a maternal scene. And the only person who would think that 15 is the ideal time to be frozen is somebody who has only reached the age of 15. Right. Like I feel like any person, especially like any woman beyond that who matures enough to know her own power would never agree to that. So it is interesting that she like specifically speaks to her in a way that would appeal to a 15 year old. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Dan has now arrived in his new location, Fraser, New Hampshire. As he gets off the bus, he's immediately sort of in the town square. This looks like a smaller town. And he sees that in the center park area, there's a miniature version of the town, which is interesting, and also like a train. Not a full-size train, but kind of like a miniature amusement park-sized train that circles around the park. And as he explores the area, he meets this guy named Billy Freeman, Billy immediately pegs Dan as someone who might be running from something. He talks to Dan, asks him where he's coming from, and Dan responds that he's running away from himself. So it seems like Billy, maybe through his own life experience, is able to recognize this look about Dan, that he might be running from something, trying to start over, and they start an instant friendship. And we see that in the next scene, Dan finds a place to stay at $85 a week. $85 a week! Oh my god, the... Do we need to go to Fraser, New Hampshire? Yeah, it sounds like we do. He finds a place to stay for $85 a week in the third floor space of this local. It's not a bed and breakfast. It looks like an apartment building. But it turns out Dan found this space because Billy knows the landlord and vouched for Dan. Can I just say what that would be a year in rent? What? It would be $4,420 a year in rent. That's so rude. It's very rude. And this is also 2011. Even that feels a little bit low for 2011. I mean, it's a room. It's not an apartment. True. But still. And as the landlord is giving him a tour of the one room, she points out this blackboard wall, which is so 2011. Apparently, the previous tenant painted the whole wall with blackboard paint so he could draw with chalk on it. It was giving 500 days of summer. (laughs) (laughs) And before she leaves the room, she writes $85 a week and the word behave on the blackboard and leaves, which I thought was kind of funny. Later, we're back with Rose and Andy. Andy is watching the waves. She seems to be contemplating a lot of things. And Rose approaches her and is like, you ready? She's ready. So again, making decisions on behalf of her. They lay Andy down next to a campfire. And the rest of this group gather around this fire. And they introduce Grandpa Flick, who is going to lead the group in some chants and affirmations. And (laughs) This is is a cult. It is a cult. Um... (laughs) They repeat, they are the true knot, the chosen ones, the fortunate ones. What is tied cannot be untied. 
So Rose pulls out like a canteen of sorts and says, this one's special. Her name is Violet and she tastes like flowers. So again, calling back to that initial opening scene, when she opens the canteen, a vapor emits and Rose inhales it deeply and then blows the vapor into Andy's face and tells her to breathe in deep. We see Andy shudder, gasp, convulse. She begins screaming, no, 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 over and over again. But Rose is telling her to embrace it. And very shortly after, Andy's eyes glow. And we saw Rose's eyes glow when Violet was being killed in the beginning of the movie. So this seems to be a sign that there is some power being activated within that person. So it appears as though Andy has been converted. And that's what's important to differentiate because this is done very visually in the movie. But there are people who have shine and there are people that are undead that shine. So the true not have all gone through some level of initiation for immortality. Now, Dan and who we are going to soon to find out to be Abra are human beings. They are aging at a normal rate. They have this level of shine, but these members of the true knot, and as we come to find out by extension, some of these ghosts in the Overlook Hotel, because they have died or have been sacrificed or have passed on to the other side, they are able to continue life by the consumption of other people's shine. It's kind of like vampirism. So yeah, like if you were to drink blood, it kind of, again, keeps you young, keeps you healthy, able to kind of continue on in your human vessel of a body. But that's what's important to note is that the members of the True Knot are different from Dan and Abra in the sense they all have the same abilities, but the members of the True Knot have either chosen or were initiated into a higher level of access to their powers by sacrificing their life. Back to Dan. He wakes up in his apartment and realizes there's a dead woman lying next to him. As he turns around to see who it is, we see this jarring image of a dead woman saying to Dan, they haven't found us yet. She goes on to say no one did anything when they heard him crying, referring to her baby, because she left him alone so much and they haven't found them. And then Dan moves his gaze to see the curly-haired baby from the first scene, now dead, appearing next to the woman. I think this is the woman. Well, it is. Yes. And this is the curly-haired baby. So as if to say she was dead and because no one was there to take care of the baby, the baby died too. So is it assumed that the woman like drank herself to death? Well, I was thinking because when Dan left her apartment... Remember, like, he woke up and looked at her and she already had, like, vomit next to her on the mattress? I didn't notice that. Oh, my that, God, but maybe, yes. Yeah. So she was lying there naked and she did not stir the whole time Dan was moving about the apartment. And we can assume she's asleep, but there's vomit on the mattress next to her. Oh, okay. And then he put the baby next to her before he left. But literally the whole time, and maybe it's because we just watched Smile with Mm -hmm. like that overdose scene fresh in my head. I was like, is that woman alive? And plus the vomit is not a good sign. I mean, at least she's on her stomach, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, I don't know if this is a dream like Dan Paranoia, but based on his powers, it seems like this woman is saying that she was dead and her baby died too because nobody helped the baby. Mm -hmm. Which like this never comes up again. But I kind of wanted to, I guess. Like, this moment feels so heavy. We're still really early in the movie, and I'm, 
I don't know. I feel like this is such a, a mark against Dan's character. I don't know if it's supposed to help us see his progression because he does then become sober and, and then we have another jump forward in time and he's able to, you know, better handle himself and navigate through some of the trauma that he's been carrying for so many years. But I don't know. This made me very sad. Yeah, I think this is just meant to be the moment that convinces him that he mm. needs help. You know what? You're right, because then he does go to Billy for help. You're yes. right. Right away, he goes to Billy for help. And we see him, like, looking at a bottle and contemplating it. Instead, he goes to Billy and says, I need help. Ugh. And then they, they're at a AA meeting, and he's getting his 24-hour chip. There's a scene where there is this Dr. John there who's running the AA meetings who you thought was very hot. Oh, yeah. Well, he's played by Bruce Greenwood, who was Roderick Usher in Fall of the House of Usher. He's also like the principal guy in Gerald's game. Yes. So I just thought he looked very dapper in this movie. In the Flanniverse. (laughs) All in the Flanniverse. I don't know why Dan does this trick where he tells Dr. John where his missing watch is. It's like Oh, because he sees him messing with his Oh, you don't know why he does it? Yeah, I don't know why he does it. Like I understand that it's meant to show that like Dan has shine and he could do well at a hospice, I guess. I don't know, but I think he just does it maybe because he is trying to turn over a new leaf and he knows where the man's watch is and he maybe he knows it matters to him. Basically, Dan notices this man's watch is missing, goes up to him and is like, you were concerned about this patient with this disease. You forgot you took off your watch in the bathroom when you were washing your hands. It's in there. You can find it there. And the guy's like, what the fuck? But then he finds his watch. But then that convinces Dr. John to be like, okay, you're getting a job at a hospice. And he's like, okay, cool. So after that, Andy wakes up to the sound of the radio on the beach. She's surrounded by tents, RVs, other vehicles, kind of assessing the convoy that is the true knot. Rose appears and Andy's like, you lied to me. You said it didn't hurt. It felt like I was dying. Am I even still a human being? And Rose is like, do you care? You'll feel better when you eat. But when she said I felt like I was dying, Rose says you did. Which I was like, you bitch. You were not completely honest. You did not outline the terms and conditions. (laughs) No. And that goes back to what you said about her manipulation. And that is very important to Rose's character, too. And we kind of see her and Crow Daddy seem to have the strongest bond. And they, well, Rose is definitely in control, but Crow Daddy is her kind of second in command. And they together seem like they decide a lot of the information that's shared with the other cult members. But it is interesting. Like already, Rose has this habit of only disclosing the information that's going to get her what she wants. And she's not completely honest about the rest of it. Meanwhile, Dan is mopping the floor at the hospice that he now has a job at, and there is a cute little cat wandering about named Azzy, short for Azrael, which is the angel of death. (gasps) Very fun. Azzy goes into one of the rooms of the patients, and as Dan tries to go to get the cat out, the patient notes that the cat always seems to know when it's time. The cat knows when it's time to go to sleep. The patient says, I'm going to die. I've known it was coming, but that doesn't make it any less scary. Dan sits with him, comforts him. He's like, listen, it's just going to be like going to sleep. And he's like, what are you, a doctor? And he's like, no, I'm not a doctor. He's like, well, I think you're a doctor. You're like, doctor sleep. Leo moment. (laughs) Leo moment. Leo moment. But the patient goes on saying that he's scared it's going to hurt or it's going to be nothing afterwards. Like he's just scared. And Dan stops him and says, you're going to find a true restful sleep. And he seems assured in this. Like he seems to be very comforting to this man who then very shortly after says that he sees his wife breathes very heavily. And as he dies, there is a vapor that emits from his mouth. So this is supposed to be a sign that animals can also shine. Because yeah. Azzy can sense when somebody's going to die. 
And of course, we've been seeing this steam or this vapor occur a lot more with the true knot. But it's one of those things that I guess happens all of the time. It's just life force. Mm. And some people have more of it and some people have less of it. But like Dan obviously isn't trying to take that from anybody else. Like he's yeah. happy with the ones that he's got. Yeah, the vapor just dissipates in the room. Yeah. So when Dan returns back to his room that night, he finds the word hello written on his blackboard wall with a little smiley face in the O, which is cute. And he is like, what the fuck? So he writes back, hi. And then we cut to a sleeping Abra who smiles and rolls over in her bed, which indicates that somehow this girl who has these powers somehow has telepathically found Dan and is communicating with him via blackboard wall. Eight years later, Dan gets his eight-year chip and makes a speech at an AA meeting saying this time has him thinking about his dad. The only time he really got to know his dad was when he went dark, when he drank to dull the dot, 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 and he doesn't really, you know, fill that in. He says the temper and anger that I had were his, but now I know it's a little different because my dad was also trying to get better. He had a five-month chip before it all, dot, dot, dot. Like, again, kind of filling in the blanks for us as he sympathizes with his dad as somebody who really was trying to do the right thing. And then once the overlook happened, it was all going to be undone. He dedicates his eight-year chip to his father, saying that he is standing where his father always wanted to be standing, so this chip is for Jack Torrance. And it's a nice little moment. Later, we see him at work with another patient waking to Azzy on his bed and Dan at his side. Patient notes that he doesn't need to ask why those two are here, kind of showing that they've kind of formed this little alliance, yeah, this old death alliance. But also that the patients in the hospital seem to, like, have talked enough that they know who he is. Yes. And there's another beautiful scene where Dan kind of sings with this patient until he passes away. Kind of showing that he's been able to use his shine for good. Yes. Not overusing it, but using it to a degree where he knows what's coming and he's able to comfort people and remember different details about their lives. They sing a song together right before this man passes away. That was important to him. So, again, using the shine for good. And we also see when Dan gets home that night, he is maintaining contact with Abra, who is now eight years older herself. So they have continued their notes on the blackboard to one another. But they don't know who each other are. No. That's what's important to note is that they know they have a shining pen pal, but they don't know who the other person is. And I think that's what Dan even calls her. I think he even says something at one point like, oh, my pen pal or something. Mm -hmm. Back to the true knot. Eight years after Andy has been converted, it seems like they have not had a good feed in a while. Maybe back when Andy joined, they were in a much better situation. But we see that the grandpa character is becoming very gray and gaunt looking. Everyone around the camp seems very tired. And in a conversation with Crow Daddy, and I will always call him Crow Daddy. You you must. I have to say Crow Daddy. It's like one of those first last name situations. It has to be both. In a conversation with Rose, it sounds like they have just been having a hard time finding steam that they need to survive. And even the shine that they have found hasn't been as strong as it was like 50 years ago. And even is like, I don't know if it's their diets or their phones or their Netflix, (laughs) but you know as well as I that the steam just isn't as strong. And he says to Rose, the world's not as steamy and you are looking for a whale. So Rose wants a good kill. She wants a steam, a steam of a lifetime. 
But he begs her, can we open a canister to tide us over because it's been six months since they ate. And when Rose goes into her supply, we see that there's only really three canisters. And it's sad because each canister is kind of adorned with little mementos or little trophies. trophies. Yeah, of who that person was. And they all open a canister that night and simultaneously surround it and feed on it. So again, the supply is low and Rose seems to be frustrated that they're kind of going into their supply, but also knowing that they are kind of in a dire situation. But Crow Daddy is also on the hunt. He knows that there's somebody with Shine very close. He thinks maybe Iowa. And eventually he does find this boy by attending a Little League baseball game. He's tracking the young baseball player named Bradley, who seems like he's using his shine to help him during games. He even overhears like two dads having a conversation about how Bradley seems to always know what the pitcher is going to do. And guess who that guy is? Who? Some during the plot trivia. Danny Lloyd, who played Danny Torrance in The Shining, makes a cameo appearance as an adult spectator in the baseball game scene. Lloyd hadn't acted since the original and was excited when he was asked to return by Flanagan. He had retired from acting after The Shining and now works as a school teacher. Oh my god, imagine your school teacher being in one of the most iconic movies of all time. Exactly, but like the guy who's being like, oh, that number 19, he can do whatever, (laughs) like that is Danny Torrance. Wait, I love that so much. That was a fun little piece of trivia before we get into a very heartbreaking (laughs) section of the film, okay? So I hope you enjoyed that. This is the darkest scene of the movie. Yeah, It's so awful. So obviously the True Knot have found their target. Extra sad, they target Bradley when he's walking home alone from his Little League game. It's like, where was your family at your Little League game, Bradley? Seriously, you're the star of the show. It's also like, at this point, it's 2019. Why are you walking home? I feel like that's just not as common as it would have been earlier. And he's, okay. in, a, he's in like a corn field. Yeah, what are you doing? Anyway. I mean, so you're in Iowa, I guess, whatever. They pull up beside Bradley and I forget that guy's name. He has, like, long hair. He's one of the cult members, but I forget his name. They call him Chunk. Chunk! That's what his name is. Chunk tries to encourage Bradley to get in the van, but Bradley's like, no, I'm close, thanks. But then, of course, Andy slides open the back door and is like, you want to get in the van, we're friends. So that's how they lure Bradley into the van. They take him to a secluded area. It looks like an abandoned plant of some kind. And then they pin him down by, like, tying him to different stakes in the ground. I mean, I don't know if you have dialogue from this part, but they essentially murder him. But they do it very slowly because, as we learn, pain enriches the steam and screams do the same thing. So, like, they want their victim to be screaming and in pain for as long as possible so they can get the most enriching life force or steam from the victim. Monsters, Inc.? Oh my God, what the fuck? Is this Monsters Inc.? It's Monsters Inc. It's essentially what they're, the canisters of screams. Yes. What? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Oh. Well, until you find out that laughter can do the same thing at the end because it's a fucking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like in the beginning, it's like they need to be as scared as possible because that's going to provide the most amount of energy. Oh my God, that's right. Well, you bitches tickle them to death. <laughs> Or just tickle them and be on your way. Wait, that's so interesting. You guys, and it's 2019. Monsters, Inc. has been around for years. Don't you guys ever watch a movie? Exactly. But that's exactly what she's saying. Fucking Jacob Tremblay is putting on the performance of his life. He's like, are you going to hurt me? And Rose says, yes. 
They are stabbing him, and each time they stab him, steam is emitting from his mouth as he cries, and they're all inhaling around him. More is released every time they hurt him. They're taking it in. I want to talk about this later, but it's also very uncomfortable that this experience seems to be a sensual experience for all of them. Yes, and I think that that's really underscored by Rose specifically. She kind of, in some ways, reminds me of like Mama Bird. Like in most cases, she takes the steam first and then gives it to the cult members. But it seems sensual. Like you can see that they are getting pleasure from this inhaling of the steam. And then at the end, like once Bradley is dead, everyone seems horny as fuck. <laughs> Everyone looks like they're about to make out with each other. There's so much. It's you're like right. an aphrodisiac. Sexu- yeah. Yes, there's yeah. like this sexual tension, which is obviously like extra uncomfortable because the victims seem to always be like young children. And does that have to do with like the purification of the steam because they're not tainted by something? And we have language around this later mm-hmm, yeah. where with Dan, it's like yours is greasy, like you have grease oh, all over yeah. you. Well, it kind of reminds me too of like traditional depictions of witches. Because it seems like this cult uses this steam for some kind of immortality or like youth or restored beauty or health. And so I feel like usually children like in folklore and stories over the years, for some reason, because they are in their youth in that purest form, like if that's what you're using the life force for, then you want it from somebody who's actually young and in that state. Or also like it seems like they track down these kids who are using their shine And I'm wondering, too, like, are kids just unafraid of their shine? Are they more likely to use it without worrying about the consequences? Or, like, are they using it more freely? I'm not sure. And I think we're about to see that with Abra because she's able to kind of break into this experience. Before I talk about her some more during the plot trivia, because we can't underscore that this scene goes on for a long time. Like, this is not a brief stab, stab, ding, ding, quee. Like, this is not... (laughs) This is not a ding, ding, This is not a ding, 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 quee. Like, this is... (laughs) This is a long... Like, this kid is crying. This kid is screaming. He's putting on the fucking performance of Mm -hmm. a lifetime. So, according to director Mike Flanagan, the performance of Jacob Tremblay during the first take of his death scene was so intense that it surprised and scared the other actors, including Rebecca Ferguson who was so horrified that she was stammering and couldn't get her lines out. When the scene was over, a grinning Tremblay jumped up, covered in fake blood, high-fived his father, and walked over to the craft service to get a snack, leaving Ferguson and the rest of the cast shell-shocked and traumatized. (laughs) Flanagan noted that this scene was the most difficult he's ever had to film because his performance was so believable. That little piece of information made me feel so much better, though. Because part of the reason I felt like the scene was so heavy was imagining, like, the trauma the actor might have to carry around. Oh, he was fine. But he was sounds like he was fine, (laughs) so that's great. As everybody else that was like, oh my God, I'm actually killing this child. Yeah. And he's just like, did I do good? He was like, probably like, that was so cool, you guys. Look exactly. at this fake blood. As this is happening, Abra is waking with fear, seeing visions of Bradley through her eyes, like seeing what he's experiencing. And she screams, stop, you monster, which calls Rose's attention. She starts feeling Bradley's pain and she is screaming and thrashing on her bed, which causes her parents to rush in and help her. And all of this culminates in this very large display where the chalkboard in Dan's apartment cracks. It feels like something's trying to bust out of the wall and it wakes him from his sleep. And when he is able to sit up and look at it, it says murder on the wall, but he looks at it from his mirror and it says red rum. Mm -hmm. He writes who on the chalkboard being like, what's going on? Abra writes back baseball boy. So Abra's parents are obviously trying to comfort her as best as they can while she cries. They killed him. They killed him. 
as this is going on, we see the true knot burying Bradley in a shallow grave and Rose telling Crow Daddy that they had a quote unquote looker, again, relaying that she felt somebody else's presence with the shine while Bradley was being murdered. Because Rose was able to get a sense, I think, for Abra's power, she clocked Abra as somebody with a lot of power. And it seems like Abra might be the whale, quote unquote, that they're looking for. And it's interesting because Crow then notes, sorry, Crow Daddy (laughs) then notes that they need to jump on it before her parents take her to a psychiatrist and medicate her and ruin her steam. Mm. So I also find it interesting that like, what is this shining or what is steam supposed to be an allegory for? Is it unbridled creativity? Is it difference? Is it curiosity like what is it supposed to be an allegory for because it seems like as we get later into this movie there's an idea of tainted steam Mm. like the idea that you've used something to cover it up which i guess is what the true not have been running into that the steam that they have gotten has been compromised somehow so i'm just curious as to like what that allegory is supposed to be or what the metaphor is supposed to be But the next morning, Dan gathers himself and writes a message to Abra on the chalkboard saying, hope you're okay, your friend Dan. Abra is saying, like, I made a new friend. His name is Dan. (laughs) (laughs) And this is an interesting scene because her mom notes that, listen, your head kind of works like a radio and sometimes it can pick up weird stations. Are you talking to somebody safe? So this seems to be like a recognition that Lucy, her mother, knows that Abra has some sort of ability but doesn't exactly know how to navigate the conversations around it. But Abra, sure, she's okay. And at school, she reads her peers' minds casually as she scrolls the missing children's database and sees Baseball Boy and finds out that his name is Bradley Trevor. So Abra gets home to her fucking mansion. Yeah, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous It's a gorgeous, gorgeous house. Goes to her room and she looks at Bradley's photograph that she printed off the website and closes her eyes and tries to focus. She's given more visions of Bradley tied up in a van and, again, seeing through his eyes different landmarks that the caravan passed before stopping at this plant, also where they went after. She's writing down phrases on pieces of paper of things that she's seeing, noticeable landmarks. She looks out the window while still kind of astral projecting and pushes herself into another space. It's a really cool visual. And she is now seeing through somebody else's eyes in a grocery store. And it's Rose's perspective. And Rose is in a supermarket, just strolling around with her little cart. We see Rose notice, or at least get the feeling that somebody is watching her. Like we see her stop, turn around, look to see if there's somebody behind her. She pulls off to the side and closes her eyes to focus herself. And we see that when she opens them, she is looking through Rose's window. So Abra is looking at Rose, but Rose is looking at Abra. But as soon as Abra feels that Rose has entered her head, what does she say? Get out? She says something and closes her mind to Rose in a way that is strong enough to physically shatter the freezer door in front of Rose in the store and shove her backwards, sliding on her ass down the aisle in her real physical space. Rose has never experienced that kind of power before. Number one, being shut out of somebody else's head. As far as we know, Rose seems like she was always the master of those spaces, but let alone feeling that physical force in her real world. So when she gets back to the campsite, she lets Crow Daddy know, saying that whoever's shine this is might be too powerful for the true knot. And she mentions that she doesn't want anybody else in the true knot having access to that kind of power, which again point to her and Crow Daddy being the leaders of this and also selecting the information that they share with the members of the cult. 
So the next day, Abra casually takes a bus to New Hampshire. She seems to be like led or compelled to go there and she finds Dan. She says hi through the shine until he recognizes who she is and they sit and talk on a bench, which is a nice parallel between Dick and Dan as a kid. Oh, yeah. And then Dan and Abra, obviously. He's like, listen, like the way this climate is me talking to a little girl on a bench doesn't look good. He's like, well, you're my Uncle Dan. We'll just say that. (laughs) And that will come back later in importance. They talk about their shines and Abra's like, how many of us are there? And Dan says, a lot of people have a little. They're intuitive. They do really good on tests. They're good athletes. But I've only met two or three who ever knew about their shine. So then Abra goes on to tell Dan about Bradley. It's like, we need to find his body. There's a baseball glove they left behind. And if I can track that down, I'll be able to find out who did it to him. And Dan's like, listen, go home. Do not chase these people or attract their attention. Find something to hide your shine and hope they don't find you. So he's very much like, stop what the fuck you're doing, where Abra's on some vigilante shit. (laughs) So at work, Dan greets the cat. And she goes to approach a door, but Dan's like, you got your wires crossed. There's nobody in that room tonight. But as he goes and investigates, he sees a dark figure in the corner. And we see Dan start that visualization of trying to like lock somebody up in a box. But then he comes to find out that it's Dick. Dan's like, oh my God, it's been so long. Why are you here? And Dick says, these people that you saw, these devils, they eat screams and drink pain. And if they ever got a whiff of you as a kid, you'd be long dead. And they've noticed that little girl and they might kill her. So you need to help her. Like I helped you. And you owe a debt. You have to pay it because he has been helped by Dick. Dan owes it to somebody else to help another generation of a person who shines. This is when I started being like, oh, my God, I love this justice for Dick's character. Yeah. Because it's kind of establishing this, I don't know, cyclical help. And I had such beef with Dick's character being killed off so easily in The Shining when he did so much to help Danny. Mm -hmm. And now kind of like this passing of the torch moment, I felt like it gave justice to Dick's character, but it also gave motivation to Dan's character. So I thought it was a really great writing moment. Like I liked where the plot was going at this point. So back to Abra, she's hanging out in her room. Her mom comes in to check on her. She says she's going to visit her sick mother, Abra's grandmother. And she even asks Abra if her mother will pull through this time. And Abra says she doesn't know. Tell her I love her. So again, another conversation where her mother, Lucy, is acknowledging Abra's powers and even kind of asking her if she knows anything that she might not know at the time. But that's just to say why Abra's mother is leaving the house. So she'll just be home with her father. Back to Rose, we see her meditating on top of her camper, and she manages to find Abra's neighborhood in her vision. We see her kind of plop down in the middle of the street in front of Abra's house and gets into her bedroom and simultaneously her quote-unquote head as Abra is sleeping. As she's standing in her bedroom with the sleeping Abra, she sees that the walls of her mind are full of filing cabinets, neatly organized with different people's names. Rose even has this dialogue about, oh, you people try to keep everything so organized, your memories, your feelings, and things like that. And so she starts digging through them. Did you happen to see the name of the drawer that she starts rifling through? Nah, I didn't. It was just, yeah. she was looking for information. Okay, so she starts rifling through one of the drawers, and all of a sudden, the drawer shuts on her. Rose quickly realizes that Abra has set a trap for her. This is a pretty visceral scene because her hand is stuck in this metal filing cabinet drawer and she can't tear it free. So then Abra takes this opportunity to sit up on her bed, antagonize Rose a little bit, and then get into her head. 
Previously, Rose had made a comment to Abra while she was sleeping that my mind is a cathedral, fuck you, basically. So as Abra is exploring Rose's mind, we do see that it has these like gothic cathedral elements, which I thought was interesting. Like at least she was honest there. We see Abra quickly moving through Rose's head. She's reading all the intel she can. Rose cannot expel Abra until she rips her hand out of the filing cabinet drawer. We can see that the skin on her hand is mutilated. Some of it has peeled off as she has tried to rip it free. And then Rose is able to snap back into her body at the knot camp or whatever. And her injury has carried with her into the waking world. Yeah, giving very much Nightmare on Elm Street vibes. The members of the True Knot are surrounding her, trying to comfort her. But then Chunk comes in and delivers some bad news that Grandpa Flick is cycling. So he has obviously not been well for like a couple days. And Andy is now confused, saying like, I thought we lived forever. And Rose reminds her, as long as you eat well, you live long. So we see that Grandpa Flick, they call it cycling, and it's a good way to describe it. His face is kind of flicking back and forth between like a dead face and a live face, a midlife face, a young face. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a lot of different cycles that they're going through, I guess, how many times that he's been close to death and then fed, like those types of things. And Rose, you know, kneels beside Grandpa Flake and tells him like, you saw the gladiators, you saw the Romans rise and fall, you saw so many things. Grandpa Flick ends up screaming, crying, and then eventually dying and evaporates completely into steam. And the True Knot wastes no time feeding on him, I guess, showing how hungry they are. Meanwhile, Abra has telepathically communicated with Dan, and he answers back, newly motivated by his conversation with Dick, that if they're going to do this thing, let's do this thing. So he's all in to help Abra try to track down little Bradley's body so they can try to bring some closure to the family. So Dan goes to Billy's that night at 4 a.m. Billy opens the door. He's like, what the fuck are you doing here? And Dan is like, you saw me for who I was the first time I saw you. I have a story to tell you. Please believe me. And we don't see that story happen, but we do see in the next shot, Billy is with Dan as they are driving in a car to some location. So we get the sense that Billy has heard Dan, believed Dan, and he is there to help Dan and whatever the next part of his journey is. And what he's doing is traveling to the location that Abra has described to him, like that abandoned plant that she saw Bradley's body buried in. Abra is telepathically communicating with Dan as he drives and as Billy sleeps in the passenger seat. And she almost causes an accident when she tries to show Dan how she pushed Rose from her mind. She kind of almost does it to Dan's mind and he almost loses control of the car. And that prompts her to ask about Dan's mind boxes because as she tried to mimic that pushing for Dan, she briefly saw into his head. And he tells her not to go into his head again, (laughs) but he kind of explains the boxes. Abra just promises she won't do that again. Meanwhile, Crow Daddy is telling Rose, you shouldn't come with us to hunt, saying that like Abra is now seen inside your mind. She can watch you and would see us coming if you came with us. And Rose is obviously pissed at this, but Crow's assures her that he has a few tricks of his own. So the caravan leaves without her. She stays at camp while the rest of them go to hunt Abra down. Meanwhile, Billy and Dan arrive at the sign from Abra's vision and follow her instructions to dig up Bradley's body. And Billy's like, what the fuck did you get me into? (laughs) Yeah, Billy. But later we see Dan and Billy arrive at Abra's house shortly after Abra has revealed to her family like what she's been, or at least her father because her mother is away, who she's been talking to. And Abra's dad rightfully goes to swing on Dan because you're your old man talking to my daughter or whatever. Eventually, 
Abra is able to get inside her father's head and show him everything that happened to Bradley to convince him these people are who I say they are, like they're here to help us. They're asking Abra, here's the baseball glove. Go see where they are. And she's like, they're on the 95, which I thought was so I was like, I-95. I'm on that all the time. Yeah, exactly. They're (laughs) on the 95. But she guesses they're in Massachusetts. So Mm -hmm. very slowly making their way to where they are in New Hampshire. But they are closer. Like, they will get there within the day. So they have to plan how they're going to trap them. So Dan and Billy drive into the woods and Abra is accompanying them and says, okay, like they're following us. They're close behind. Meanwhile, Rose is sitting and meditating and guiding the caravan to where they are in the woods. The True Knot arrive in the woods to find Abra sitting on a park bench meditating. And as they approach her, Andy wills her to relax and seemingly sedates her with a syringe to the neck. But then they realize they sedated a stuffed animal and not Abra. A stuffed bunny. Yes. So they have been tricked. Meanwhile, shots are ringing out and Dan and Billy are firing shots at all these True Knot members. And Abra appears in front of Andy and says, you all deserve this. But Abra is not on the scene. She's at home projecting into the scene. So she's able to communicate with all of them because they all shine. But she was actually never there. She is safe at home for now. So everyone gets shot and killed. All of the True Knot members are shot and killed. And we see them cycle and dissipate very quickly. But Andy is shot, but not enough to kill her. She's able to escape inside the RV. We see Dan try to take a shot at her, but he's out of ammunition. He tries to reload, which gives Andy enough time to manipulate him to stop. And right before it seems like she is going to shoot him with the gun, Billy manages to clip her neck, not killing her. And with her last words... Andy is able to will Billy to shoot himself, and so he does. But then Andy dies. So it's such a brutal moment and such an interesting kill, like seeing that manipulative power used in that way. So the only person to come out of that whole big showdown alive is Dan and Abra, who was never in the scene, but was astral projecting kind of in. And then, of course, Rose just watched her entire cult get taken out, except for Crow Daddy. Sounds like he really did have some tricks up his sleeve. It turns out that he did not go with the caravan to the woods to abduct Abra. He actually went to Abra's house, killed her father, which we can assume by seeing his lifeless body on the ground, and captured Abra while she was concentrating on projecting herself into that scene in the woods. And he does sedate her in the neck, actually. Dan loses his connection with Abra and doesn't know where she is. So Abra wakes in the back seat of the camper dosed and she finds that she can't use her shine. And Crow Daddy is like, look at this. The outcome is the same. We have you. So now the deaths on both sides are your fault. Essentially saying that my people didn't have to die for anything. Your father didn't have to die for anything. The outcome is the same. You shouldn't have tried to trick us. Meanwhile, Dan is discovering Abra's dad's dead body and considers the bottle on the counter. But again, is able to resist it. Dan does take the bottle with him home to his apartment and is trying desperately to reach out to Abra and then eventually Tony, but there's no response. This scene is very gripping. He raises the drink to his lips and almost drinks like a couple times, but ends up smashing the bottle in frustration instead and eventually tries again to reach Abra and he's finally able to. I love the scene because before we see him calling out her and then he switches tactics and decides to listen for her and he moves through these different frequencies of voices like a radio, which I think is such a good callback to that radio conversation earlier with Abra and her mother. And he's eventually able to hear her asking for help. So he links to her that way. He appears to her in a vision and touches her hand, which allows him to briefly like inhabit Abra's body, almost like a friendly possession. (laughs) 
because she's drugged and doesn't have the strength to do anything herself. So then we see Abra, seemingly Abra, sit up in the back of the car. She starts talking about feeling hungover, which is funny because she's 15. And then it's even funnier because she's like, I haven't been hungover in years. And it's like, okay, obviously Dan has inhabited her body. And her acting is so good, too. Like the mannerisms are so different than how she's been acting. And then Crow Daddy realizes something has happened and he asks who has appeared here. He knows this is not Abra talking. Dan replies through Abra that it's the guy who killed your friends. Crow Daddy tries to reach for the gun, but then Dan slash Abra reminds him that Rose is probably going to be unhappy if he shoots the prize. So then together, they're able to cause Crow Daddy to lose control of the vehicle. He steers it into a tree, and because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, he is projected through the windshield. Abra gets out of the car and approaches him and watches him cycle and die. So Abra then walks along the road to see a vision of Rose the Hat in the street. Her eyes are glowing and she's pissed. Abra walks up to her and smirks and Rose is like, you little bitch, what have you done? But Abra is able to walk right through her. Abra is fearless, Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. It's so cool seeing her, I don't know, just like be a boss in every situation that she is encountered with. Then comes my favorite line of the movie. All right, bitch child. All right. (laughs) Bitch child. Bitch child. (laughs) I was like, I cracked the fuck up. So then Rose, at this point, is alone in the world. Crow Daddy is dead. The entire True Knot are dead. So she gets the three canisters that are left and huffs her entire fucking supply to send her powers into overdrive. I think that's a really interesting parallel between Dan almost consuming the bottle, then ditching it. And then watching Rose consume all three canisters left of the steam. Mm -hmm. Dan ends up finding Abra, tracks her down, they embrace. Later, she awakes in his passenger seat and Dan informs her that they're going to Colorado. That there's a place that's dangerous for people like us. And if it's dangerous for people like us, I expect it's dangerous for people like her even more so. So we're going back to Overlook. We're going back. Mm. Abra's able to confirm that Rose is following them. And I was like, not the nighttime redo of the opening scene of The Shining with the same music because they're driving through the hills at dark and they arrive at the Overlook. And Dan tells her to wait outside until Rose gets close and to let him know when Rose gets close because he needs to go inside and wake it up. He walks through the building, turning on lights, stopping by iconic locations like the boiler room first. The elevator where we saw all that blood pouring out of in the Shining original movie. He even stops by his parents' old apartment, still with the axe craters left in the doors and the walls left by Jack all those years ago. He finds his way to the ballroom and meets the bartender. And guess what he passes on the way to the ballroom? What does he pass on the way the to the ballroom? The Lasser Glass. Wait, What? Oh my god, this is one of the lasser glass plants. The lasser glass can be seen on the right-hand side of the wall when Dan is walking down the hallway towards the gold room. Oh my gosh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to our Oculus episode from just a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I love that. So Dan is talking to bartender Lloyd, but this is not a, a Lloyd that bears a resemblance to the Lloyd that we know from The Shining. Once we get a glance at Lloyd, we realize that this is Jack Torrance appearing as bartender Lloyd. Not Jack Nicholson, but a very close resemblance. Yeah, not Jack Nicholson, but yeah, very close resemblance. You could tell like the hairstyle, the hairline, like the face, the cadence of speaking, and the way that Dan is speaking to him. He's speaking to him as his father. 
And we see Lloyd, quote unquote Lloyd, insisting that, oh, I think you think I'm somebody that I'm not, which also is interesting because that parallels the conversation between Jack Torrance and Grady in the bathroom when Grady is like, I was never here. You were anyway, so it kind of like parallels that weird conversation. Dan is talking to Lloyd like he's his father. He tells him about moving to Florida after everything that happened at the Overlook Hotel, how Wendy died when Dan was 20. Dan knew she was dying because so many flies were always flying around her when she was close to death. And Lloyd seems disinterested. And Dan gets frustrated and is like, I think you would be interested because she was your wife. Finally, it seems like Lloyd lets down the act that he is not Jack and starts speaking to Dan as Jack. Jack reflects on drinking as medicine, like an eraser, and he asks if Dan is going to take his medicine and Dan declines. So even in that conversation, it still seems like there's very much tension between father and son, like in this ghostly encounter. I also think it's interesting that over the years, we saw that Dan had closed away in his mind boxes all of the spirits of the Overlook Hotel, except clearly his own father's, Mm -hmm. um, because that's the only one that is appearing to him at this time. Next, interrupting the conversation, Abra channels Dan and says that Rose is arriving. So Dan goes to Abra outside. We can see Rose's headlights and she soon arrives on site and enters the building. I thought this moment was so funny. Like the first thing she sees is the famous elevator corridor flooding with blood and she just like smirks and walks away. She's like, I'm not scared. Fuck you. Then she continues to the lounge where she finds Dan standing on the iconic stairs with axe in hand and Abra next to him. Dan tells Rose that she should be afraid, and she responds, I'm sorry, who are you, handsome? And I was like, finally someone acknowledges how delicious this man is. (laughs) Dan and Abra then teleport Rose into the hedge maze. She stalks her way through the maze, thinking that she's in Abra's mind. She even makes a comment about, oh, well, you've done a lot with this space since I've seen it last. Eventually, Rose is able to catch up to Abra, is holding her by the neck, and it's like, you are so much like me, you don't know what you would do for more time. So again, trying to show her, like, you don't know what you're actually talking about. But Rose begins to realize this isn't Abra's mind. We see from the back that there is a mind box almost ready to trap Rose, but she is able to project them all out of Dan's mind, and they are all back in the present. And she even muses to Dan, how the hell did we miss you? Mm -hmm. Like, noting his power. She advances on him on the stairs while Abra runs away and offers him the eat well, live long trope. As he refuses, they get hits on each other. And Rose sends Dan tumbling down the stairs with a lot of damage to his femoral artery, which he looks like he's bleeding out very quickly. They tussle some more and she is fingering the wound. So that he emits shine and she's inhaling it provocatively, telling him he tastes like whiskey. And it's like hard to watch because he's in very much pain and she's very much taking advantage of him. It's very, yeah. Erotic. It's very erotic. Yeah. He is getting flashbacks to his father chasing him with the axe as a child. The other stair scene happening. And Rose is inside of his head now and sees all of the boxes. She's like, these look special. What are they? And he says, they're not special. They're starving. And he opens all of them and all of the ghosts of the Overlook populate the area and descend on Rose. And she dies. Which I was a little disappointed in that. There is a cool scene, though, where we see one of the ghost's hands, like, reaching up into, like, the skin on her face, Mm -hmm. which I thought was very creepy. But yeah, I agree with you. That was a deliciously corny moment. Yes. That's, like, one of those things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Same with like a lot of the dialogue around the shine. Like I think that the shine is called shine. It sounds corny when people talk about it and they're like, you're going to shine no matter what. I mean, the last line of this movie is like, yeah, shine on. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, it's obviously has to do with the gift, but it also sounds a little bit corny. But look, look, I'm not going to lie. I loved it. So we keep going. We're almost through here to the end. Rose has now been consumed. Consumed. Great word. But as soon as the spirits are done with her, they turn on Dan and attack him. Meanwhile... Abra is walking through the hallways and faces the dead Grady twins because, again, all these ghosts are out now. So they're all, like, populating different corners, and she is chased into room 237. There's the bathtub lady reveal, and then Dan is entering the room, but Dan is possessed Mm -hmm. by the spirit of Jack. Abra's like, you don't know where you're standing. Dan Torrance stopped at the boiler room before he got here. But then I'm like, how does that bring Dan back into his body? Like, how does that realization wake him up? That's exactly what I thought. But I think it has less to do with Dan returning to his body and more to do with the fact that we now see that Dan did some shit in the boiler room to make sure the building was going to catch on fire. Mm, Okay. So I think that it kind of had to do with the fact that, like, whoever that is is going to die because this whole building is going to go up in flames. So Abra ends up making it out outside. Because I guess in this conversation with Dan being possessed, she was able to get through to him enough to distract the evil spirit for her to escape. But Dan couldn't fight off the evil spirit forever. So he is down in the boiler room. It seems like maybe Dan is still trying to fight through and regain control of his body. But it seems like he can't quite get past the spirit that's possessing him. But then we see as the building becomes more in flames, Dan comes to terms with the fact that he's not making it out. And then we have this gut-wrenching moment where Dan's mother appears before him, like a young Wendy, like we know and have seen. And then when the camera turns back to Dan, he's standing before Wendy as a young boy. And then the building goes up in flames. We cut to the future sometime later. Abra is back in her bedroom, and she is sitting on her bed communicating with Dan, who is standing on the other side of her room. We can assume that this is Dan's spirit that she is communicating with, much like Dan communicated with Dick. Abra's mother enters the room and asks her who she was talking to, and at first Abra says nobody, but then she chases after her mother and tells her it was Dan. She also tells her mother, we go on after, and she confirms that her dad is okay too, which seems like it brings comfort to Lucy, but at the same time, Lucy also, we can tell, is she can't relate to Abra's powers, but it seems like she accepts them and she's open to trying to encourage Abra Before they sit down and watch TV together, Abra excuses herself to go to the bathroom where we see the bathtub lady sitting in wait. But Abra, with a confident look on her face, closes the door behind her and we get the sense that she will learn how to shut these evil spirits away in her mind boxes in her future. And that's the movie. Moving into some post-plot stuff. So this is on Flanagan's decision to recast some of the principal characters. So he goes on to say, we explored everything and there was only really two options as I saw it. It was either going to be something that was performed or something that was digital. And even if we had Nicholson come back, based on the rules of the hotel and how the ghosts appear with respect to their age, he would be performing the part through a digital avatar. Flanagan said that digitizing actors, while improving rapidly, were still inadequate. The idea of having a digital Danny Torrance riding a tricycle five minutes into the movie that just seemed like we were making a video game at that point, it felt disrespectful. 
Noting that any solution would be controversial, the director decided that the best approach was to not do impressions. It was to find actors who would remind us of those iconic performances without ever tipping into parody. Mm. I just wanted to be able to tilt people's memories toward the original characters, but then let the characters be their own. I want to cast someone to play Dick Halloran. I don't want to cast someone to play Scavin Crathers, who Mm. plays Dick Halloran in the original. Yes. So I just wanted to address that he did make that decision with a lot of thought in there. Some notable changes from the novel. So in the novel, Andy is older and her and Rose are actually lovers. (gasps) What? But Mike Flanagan decided to age her down to create a mentor-type relationship that mirrors Dan and Abra. Oh. Which I have some stuff on later. Because Abra and Andy must be the same age. They're both 15. Well, Andy is older than Abra in time on Earth. But yes. Also in the novel, it is revealed that Dan Torrance is actually Abra's uncle, Jack Torrance had an affair with her grandmother. <gasps> Abra's grandmother plays a larger role in the book, but is only briefly mentioned in the film as somebody who was dying. Abra calling him Uncle Dan in the film is an allusion to this. Oh, wow. So again, I guess this shine being in the family. At the end of King's novel, Danny, Billy, and Abra lure the True Knot to the Overlook Hotel, but it has long since burned to the ground, leaving only a wooden platform because it does burn to the ground in the original Shining oh, novel. Wow. In the film, the Overlook Hotel still stands and everything that takes place inside is new material added by Flanagan, though the boiler exploding is taken from the original novel of The Shining. So that's how the original Shining ends. Jack Torrance has a come-to-whatever moment. He breaks away from the influence of the... Yeah, because he's not bad all the time. He is, like, killing his son and then comes to have a moment (laughs) of realization Uh and then sends him and Wendy out and blows the Overlook up sacrificing himself so that is how the original shining ends however they took this ending for dr sleep to make it so king could get his ending in that way but for that reason dr sleep has a drastically different book ending the book ending for dr sleep ends with dan living to help abra start fighting her own battle with alcohol abuse as a teenager it also comes out in the book that jack torrance had the shine too and like dan and abra was self-medicating himself with alcohol it's made much more explicit in the book that alcohol numbs and silences the shine so this is again on that collaboration about the ending continued and this comes from the wiki so during early talks king's two stipulations for dr sleep adaptations was that the overlook would not be present and that the novel's ending would be retained king initially rejected flanagan's pitch of bringing the overlook back as seen in kubrick's film but changed his mind after flanagan pitched a scene within the hotel towards the end of the film that served as his reason to bring back the overlook Upon reading the script, King was so satisfied with the result that he said, everything I ever disliked about Kubrick's version of The Shining was redeemed for me here. Wow. So the fact that Flanagan was able to bring back Kubrick's (sighs) ending, I love him. (laughs) Flanagan later revealed that there were two scenes that convinced King to accept this idea. The first was involving Dan talking to the bartender in the form of Jack, which was not adapted from either novel and was fully written by Flanagan before finishing the first draft. So he made that whole interaction up. That's such a good interaction. The second was the ending, which directly adapts the final act of the Shining novel that was heavily omitted in Kubrick's film, with Dan and Abra taking the place of the novels Jack and Danny, as well as the Overlook burning down due to the overloaded boiler. Thus, this film can be seen as a bridge for King's Doctor Sleep and The Shining, incorporating events from both novels. Flanagan said that in his film, almost everything Dan does is Jack's story from the original novel, and that he really wanted to bring back the ending from the Shining novel and give it to Dan. 
By including these elements in the Doctor Sleep film, Flanagan explained, I saw it as this gift to me as a fan and from me to him as well, that yes, we're going to bring back this Kubrickian overlook world. And I wanted to celebrate that film. But if in doing so, at the same time, you get elements of the ending of the novel, The Shining, that Kubrick jettisoned, well, then you start to get the ending you never did and that King was denied. Wow. That is so thoughtful. I know. And I wanted to like bridge those gaps because we're talking about four different pieces of <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, seriously. And there's a lot of differences, but I think that Flanagan was the nerd that he is and really took all aspects into consideration. And I love how thoughtful he was with everything. So this next bit is from a Refinery29 interview with Caitlin Riley with Rebecca Ferguson on if she thinks Rose the Hat is evil. So Rebecca Ferguson goes on to say, Rose the Hat is a predator. She's highly intelligent and a force. She's 100% devoted to everything, which I think makes people a little bit godlike. The grandiosity of her, her selfish needs, equally as much as she loves. Rose focuses so much on her need and her wanting that she forgets to see her surroundings. Grandpa Flick cycling away is one of the most beautiful scenes for me because it shows the love and care of the true knot and how important they are to each other. They're not without emotion. They just hunt. Do you cry when you eat a hamburger? The evil is the outcome of the action, and what she and her group have to do in order to get their victims is to release the steam. For her, it's nothing more than hunting. Mm. I think it's important to portray human beings in every environment, whether we are heroes or victims, survivors or assailants. The worst thing we can do with feminism is assume that you always have to play the part of a heroine or powerful. Being a human being, whether you have a vagina or a penis, is about being vulnerable. It's about being in love and loved or scared or weak. It's everything that is a human being, and that's what's important for me to see. When I play a villain, I want to see the sadness and fear in her as well. When I play a wonderful human being, I want to find her fear, her addiction, and her sadness as well. Mm, Yeah. That is such a trademark, I think, of like modern cinema and also just characterization in general, like in books and other mediums as well. Like, like I feel like in early movies, there was such a black and white contrast between good and evil. And I just don't think that exists anymore. Because we do see Rose lamenting when the true knot are being taken out and crying and all of those types of things. Like, I think about the conversation we had in The Hills Have Eyes about the solar system family, about how they just see themselves as apex predators. They see themselves as something that's not human. So why would they act in a way where they're acting in accordance to humanity's rules when they haven't been treated as such and they are no longer really humans in their own right? I mean, are there certain hints that Rose does take kind of a pleasure in getting the steam out of especially kids? Like, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And it's sensual and it's predatory. So I don't know that she's completely devoid of evil, but I also do think that she's not like just straightforward evil either. No, she's not only evil. There are other things in that for her as well. Like, And she even has that line about like community when she's talking to Abra and the maze. She's like, I was like you once and then somebody showed me community. And so that's something that seems like fuels her. But what you were just saying reminded me of a cannibal power hour. Like one of the themes that we've explored in both of our cannibal power hours was cannibalism as like a metaphor for love or consumption or knowing somebody or seeing somebody. And in some ways, this movie has some cannibalistic themes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not physically eating flesh here, but we're eating souls. And it makes me think of that throwaway line from the original Shining where Jack says that thing about the Donner family. Mm -hmm. So there are like these subtle nods to cannibalism in both of these films, which I wonder if that was by accident or what. But that's really kind of interesting to go back and look and see that connection there. 
So this kind of leads into some general discussion points that I just wanted to touch over. So first of which being the predatory nature of Andy and Rose's relationship, which very much appears to be grooming, versus the mentorship nature of Abra and Dan's relationship, which seems to be rooted in teaching. And this is where I wanted to bring back that monologue about youth and girlhood that Rose is talking about, saying, 15, oh God, what an age, springtime of your womanhood, isn't it? You're not a girl anymore. You don't have a single dent yet either. Gravity hasn't even noticed you. Not at 15. Men, though, no, 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 no shame. You paid that back. That's what I'm offering you, springtime forever. And I wrote, says the woman who also wants to take advantage of her for what Andy can provide her. The cycle of abuse is perpetuated when Andy is then the person who overpowers Bradley and then presumably Abra when the bunny trick happens. So before Rose, she wasn't doing that. She was killing predatory men and she was kind of on this vigilante shit. Well, she wasn't even killing them. She was just... Yeah, you're right. So You're so right. She was scarring them. Mm-hmm. But now she's learned to use that power to be predatory. Seeing Andy be the one that to compel Bradley really does kind of... Well, it feels like a betrayal because yeah. Andy looks like she's 15. Mm-hmm. At this point, she would have been like 25. Oh, no, no, not even. Maybe 23. 23. Yeah. But yeah, seeing kid go against kid, it, it feels like it makes that cut so much deeper. Like a betrayal of like youth, like shared youth. But also I think seeing Andy and Rose have this shared femininity and Rose kind of taking advantage of Andy's young, budding femininity, womanhood, that also feels like it cuts extra deep. Because I feel like we've seen the trope of like older men taking advantage of women. We saw Andy conquering that. She would meet up with these older men that were trying to prey on her, leave them with a snake bite because she was in trying to ensure that they wouldn't prey on younger women anymore. But then she gets preyed on by an older woman and she trusts her until she's betrayed. And then that kind of feeds into my next point as like viewing the shine as shame. We see Abra as somebody who is very proud of her powers until her parents and then eventually Dan reinforced that she shouldn't be. It's easy to see a world where if Abra hadn't seen Bradley's death, she would have been successfully tricked into being recruited Mm. and then killed Mm -hmm. by Rose for the positive reinforcement of her abilities. As we learn that Jack also had the shine, Dan coped in the way that he was taught, masking it and banishing it into boxes in his mind. While we see Dan learn healthy coping skills and using the shine, being Dr. Sleep at the hospice, for good, it's clear that he doesn't use the full extent of his abilities until he begins communicating with Abra, who is the first representation that the shine can be used to do the right thing. Hmm. So that's what I'm wondering. Is the Andy and Rose thing positive reinforcement that like you do something powerful and there's a place for you and I'm going to make it so you can live forever. Like that is positive reinforcement of the thing that has made her othered up until this point. And we see Abra really being primed to be ashamed until she's the one who's like, no, this thing can actually be good. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because all of her role models want her to suppress it. But Rose is somebody who wants you to lean into that difference for her own for her own gain. Like, it's good and evil, obviously. It's, like, set up that way, but it's also kind of, like, fully embracing versus tactfully, shamefully navigating, you know? I was also wondering, I feel like there is a parallel between the shine and concentration. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Crow Daddy (laughs) has that line about the shine not being as strong within the last 50 years. Does it have to do with Netflix or their diets or whatever? 
And also we see Abra, like she sits alone with herself. And we also see Rose too, like both of those women are channeling. And even Dan, like when we see those people channeling their powers, they're sitting down and meditating alone with themselves. And then that is how they can kind of channel into this really powerful part of themselves. And so, yes, I can see the shine as shame, but I also wonder if it's just some kind of heightened version of the individual. Or like self-awareness. Yes. Yeah. That is what I'm kind of thinking. And I was wondering if Crow Daddy's line, which kind of sounds like a throwaway comedic relief moment, is more to say like maybe the shine isn't as strong today because people aren't sitting alone with themselves. Mm -hmm. There's so many distractions. How would anybody ever know that they had these abilities and cultivate these abilities when there are so many other things that they can be distracting themselves with or spending their time doing and things like that? And then the last point, I just didn't know if you had thoughts on, like we touched on this earlier with the Bradley death, but like the sensualness of inhaling steam and how that could be seen as some kind of allegory for addiction, like this whole idea that King laid the groundwork for of alcohol being a suppressant, but the steam being this overall like aphrodisiac indulgent type of situation. I'm kind of wondering about the natural sensuality that comes with intaking something. Like if we think about like a sort of heteronormative way of thinking about sex, it's penetration, it's entering. And so if we're thinking about this film and some of the parallels it has with cannibalism, the sensuality that comes with breathing in somebody else's steam. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's kind of a natural eroticism that comes with that. Also, too, I think there's hints about, like, vitality. We've talked about this, too, with Pearl and Lords of Salem. There's usually, like, a parallel of aging men and women and a dwindling sex drive, whereas, like, restoring youth and vitality brings, like, an increased sex drive. Mm -hmm. So I feel like those sort of tropes playing together in this, I think, naturally lend themselves to this sort of, like, eroticism that we see throughout this. I also think, and we've talked about this, preying on children adds an extra like creepy element to this. Like I think it prevents this movie from being something that you can like really fangirl over the villains about. Yeah. And keeps that line between good and evil. Even though like, yes, we see the human parts of these villains and we see the not so good parts of these heroes. Like even though, again, we see these more full images of these characters and we can see them for not necessarily a one-sided perspective, we can still see them very easily in their camps. And I think part of that comes from like preying on children. You can't really excuse that. I think it's there very clearly to show the villainy of it and the discomfort of it. But it is interesting to think about. It just makes me wonder, like, they saw Andy's ability as something they wanted to covet instead of steal Mm -hmm. versus Violet or Bradley, where they didn't see their abilities good enough to covet. They wanted to consume. That is a really good fucking point. Like, was Andy just old enough that they didn't want her? She was a little bit too old to take, but she was a good enough age to employ? That's strange because we don't see Violet's ability really ever. And Bradley seems like he can read minds, which all of them seem like they are able to do. But he's just playing baseball. (laughs) He's He's just doing some shit. Were they, like, the perfect ripeness? And then, yeah, like, Andy was about to spoil, or was it Andy's specific ability that saved her? Because even with Abra, like, she was all-powerful, but the decision between Rose and Crow Daddy was, she's too powerful, so we need to kill her. Like, we can't take her because she would be more powerful than me. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know that there's a straightforward answer, and I like that there's a lot of things that it can be interpreted as, 
But you're right. I do like that the way that they situate these villains is you're not rooting for them in the same way you root for a slasher. Like they are sympathetic to a degree that you're invested in them, but they're very unsympathetic in the ways that they mm-hmm. carry about things, which makes you scared yes. of them. Yes. Especially Rose. They are different from like the stereotypical horror villain who has a costume or a mask or some kind of calling card. Like these people do not look scary and yet they are so scary. That's it. <laughs> That's Dr. Sleep. We got two iconic movies to kick off our year. And we got another one coming next week, another wintertime special. I'm so excited. We've been talking about doing this for such a long time. And now it's finally on a streaming service that we can access. So mm-hmm. I think you guys are really going to like it. Should we say what it is? Should we just? No. Let's leave it as a surprise for y'all. We don't want to leave you in wait in your misery too long. No. And we won't. And if you want to follow us on Instagram to get a little sneak preview as to what that movie might be, of course, please follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. Or if you want to get in touch with us about a recommendation or anything else, email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.